We're starting a new series this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at First Peter. Uh, last week we ended our Galatians series, and this week we want to uh, begin a verse-by-verse study through First uh, Peter, and we'll try to do about a chapter a week. So today we're going to be looking through the entire first chapter. And anytime you see, anytime you study a letter like this, especially the short uh, epistles, I really encourage you to read. Uh, start to finish. Read, read it once all the way through at least uh, as you study it because if you got a letter from a friend or an email from a friend and it's a little lengthy, you wouldn't just read a paragraph and say, well, that was enough for today. I'll come back to the next part next week. No, I mean, you would read the whole thing. So I encourage you this week, if you haven't already, go ahead and read through the entire uh, letter of First Peter so that way each week when we break it down, you've got the entire context uh, in your head. So... Uh, that would be a good way to do that. So living in the noise, we want to focus on how to live in a culture that is not Christ-friendly without isolating to Christian subculture. And Peter reminds his original readers that they shouldn't be surprised that their, their life is hard, but he encourages them to live holy lives, both for their benefit and for the benefit of those who see their faith and hopefully would turn and follow Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised to look around us and see a culture that is unfriendly to Christianity. Jesus even warned us of this. I've lived long enough to start saying things like, when I was your age, um, I look at college students and think, oh, you're a child. And I remember back, I was married then, so I guess you're not a child, but I still, I'm getting that, that old. And, I, and I, I've lived long enough to where I look back on things of the past with nostalgic filtered glasses and think back to, you know, the good old days. But I've also read and studied enough history to realize that the world has always been messed up. It's always been. The Christians um, have always been foreigners. And despite all the lack of belonging to this world, Christ commands us to live on mission for him. And if we retreat into our Christian bubbles, if we, if we pass judgment on those outside the church, how can we live out the mission given to all disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, showing them Christ's love to those who don't, know yet, don't yet know the source of love? So we have to learn how to live in the noise. So we're going to study through 1 Peter in search of truths to help us be more Christ-like in a world that is very uh, unfriendly to Christ followers. Now, Peter, at the time of writing, he was leading the church in Rome, and he is writing to non-Jewish Christians throughout Asia Minor. Uh, that's modern-day Turkey. And these Christians certainly understood what it was like to live in, uh, be disciple-makers and live in a culture that is very unfriendly to be their beliefs in the way of, uh, of a disciple-maker. Um, as best we can tell, this was written in the early to mid-60s A.D., the Roman Empire was in charge of this entire area at that time. It's unclear if Christianity was illegal at this time, but the, it was, at the very least, we can assume that the Romans and the Greeks really didn't care for Christians, probably viewed them as subhumans because they wouldn't worship the emperor nor participate in any of the pagan sacrifices or rituals. And at this time, Nero was emperor. And if you know anything about Roman history, Nero was pure evil pure evil. In 64 AD, the great fire in Rome uh, destroyed uh, most of the city. And it's 
really unclear who actually started that fire, but Nero blamed Christians. And he did some uh, just wretched, wretched things uh, to Christians. Uh, one of the, 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 the most horrendous things is he would uh, just soak you in oil and other flammable things, put you on a stick and light you from the feet up and just burn you uh, like a candle, which is actually where the phrase Roman candle comes from. Despite all of these trials, however, Peter preaches hope and holy living. So let's dive in. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, Peter addresses these non-Jewish Christians as elect. Now, some translations may say chosen. This is, this is a huge shift for Peter, because for thousands of years, the Jewish nation, natural-born Jews, were regarded as the chosen, and everyone else, according to a Jew, was essentially a pig. For Peter to address these non-Jewish Christians as chosen is nothing short of miraculous. And in fact, it took a vision from God in Acts 10 for Peter to even realize that Jesus really did die for all. If you're familiar with Acts 10, you know about Cornelius' household. Cornelius, a Gentile, received the Holy Spirit. And through a vision, uh, Peter was then sent to uh, Cornelius' household and witnessed this. And that's when he realized that Jesus really did die for all. So a statement that we might just glance over would have carried tremendous significance to the original audience as this would add much weight to the truth of even, uh, even non-Jewish disciples are being called children of God. This is the first of Peter's encouraging words to them. Let's continue in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, by, by who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter offers the best encouragement he can offer. To these Christians who are living in an unfriendly culture, Peter calls their focus to Christ and their hope of eternity with God. They were born again, made new to live in this life, though their circumstances were less than ideal to live with the knowledge and assurance that they are children of God. That has to change one's perspective on any situation. In verse 4, he brings special attention to the cause of such a hopeful outlook. He uses the word inheritance, bringing more symbolic verbiage to being a child of God or heirs to the Heavenly Father. He describes this word inheritance with three words, imperishable, the land of Israel was only the only land bridge between the, the northern empires of the, the Fertile Crescent, which is the Tigris-Euphrates River valleys, southern Turkey, Syria, that area, 
and the southern empires of the Nile River. So these two areas were very, very fertile because of the water, the rivers, and everything. And all the nations wanted those. For thousands of years, people have been fighting over that. And so that means the natural land bridge in between those, Israel, promised land, and where it was invaded over and over and over again. And this Greek word used for imperishable has this weight to it, and it would, it would be interpreted as no possibility of military invasion. I like that. The real and eternal promised land, our heavenly inheritance, is completely imperishable. There is no possibility of military invasion. It is that secure. And I hope this word gave these readers an even stronger sense of hope to hold on to for their inheritance. Our inheritance is undefiled. It is clean. It is pure. And it's unfading. It's not going anywhere. God is holding it for us. Peter seems to be crying out to them with encouragement. Hold on to this truth of your inheritance. Peter acknowledges they are going through hard times, but he doesn't really dwell on it. In fact, he uses even the hard times to encourage his readers. All the things you are going through in this life, even the bad things, can be viewed as good because they are opportunities to refine your faith. Stay strong and lock your eyes on the hope that only comes from Christ. Even through the worst times in life, there is still reason to praise God. And that might not be something you want to hear right now in your current situation, but I promise you, your pain is temporary and your inheritance is forever. Our imperishable, undefiled, unfading, heavenly inheritance. Our inheritance is a life without pain. It's a life living with God in paradise. One day we will go home to be with our Father. As children of God, this earth is not our home. We are living as foreigners in this fallen, fallen world. Psalm 39, 4 through 7, David cries out, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. David certainly knows a thing or two about praising God through trials and living in an unfriendly culture. And he never saw Christ, and yet his faith and hope was rooted in God. No matter his circumstances, David seemed to always be able to find a reason to praise God. Peter continues with words of encouragement in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter continues to pump them up and reminds them of their faith in the unseen Savior. Don't forget, this is um, 30 years, roughly, uh, since Jesus lived on the earth. Don't forget the inexpressible joy that you have because of Jesus. Don't forget that you have eternal salvation waiting for you. Concerning the salvation, verse 10, the prophets who pro uh, prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring 
what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Listen, you are living in a wonderful time, Peter says. The prophets of old longed to know of the coming Messiah. Even the angels didn't know how God was going to bring salvation to this fallen world. But God knew, and he made it happen through the power of his spirit, through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. We are now living in the age where we can know him and rejoice in this. We possess the Holy Spirit. Peter is telling these early Christians, I know you're living during some pretty rough earthly times, but focus on what's important. You hold the key to peace, joy, love, kindness. You're in God's family, and nothing can dampen that truth. And today, we are still living in this time, a time when we can know our Savior. We have a collection of of 66 books that show us how God not only created the world, but interacts with his creation. We can look back into history and see the cycle of people loving God and then turning their backs on him and then returning to him again. All the while, God's grace and mercy is displayed. This collection of 66 books we call the Bible is a love story. It's a rescue plan lived out before our time, and now we get to live in full knowledge of the rescuer. And because of this, no matter our circumstances, we can persevere. We can hold tightly to hope. We can live the call, the ministry uh, Jesus calls us to live. Peter continues in verse 13, beginning with the word, therefore, because of everything that I've reminded you, because of who God is, because of who Christ's, uh, because of Christ's love, because of the inheritance waiting for you, I need you to pay attention and follow through with what I'm about to say. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as you who are called to is holy, you who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is holy. And a few times in scripture, he's even called holy, holy, holy. The three holies, the number three symbolizes completion or wholeness. God is completely holy. He is set apart from all imperfections. He is perfection. His character is consistently pure. There is no part of God that contradicts another. He is both gracious and just. He always knows what is right, therefore always does what is right. It is impossible for God to know what is right and not do it. That would be inconsistent with his character. God is perfect. He is holy. God is uniquely and incomprehensibly above all in every flawless faucet of his eternal being and therefore worthy of any and all worship, service, or obedience he desires to require of his creatures. God's holiness permeates his entire being and shapes all his attributes. His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. And even his anger and wrath are holy anger and holy wrath. 
God is above all and separate from all. He is holy and he demands holiness from his children. In verse 16, Peter is quoting Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, God spoke through Moses and explains what it meant for Israel to live as a holy nation, to be set apart from all other nations. And God applies the Ten Commandments to various areas of life, spelling out in great detail for the Israelites how to be holy as he is holy. And they were to honor their parents, keep the Sabbath, not practice idolatry, worship and offer sacrifices according to God's instructions, and many other things. The problem, however, is that our human brains often take lists like this, instructions, and make them into lists of do's and don'ts. We take God's instructions on how to have a proper relationship with him and make it into a religion. And the word religion means to bind back. Every other religion in the world has rules that we as people have to follow in order to fix the problem that we created. And we all know through looking at scripture that that's impossible. We seem to think that these are lists we need to follow according to our own power because we want the control. But just a few weeks ago, Derek preached through Galatians 5, where Paul speaks of the results of us following our sinful desires versus the results of following the Spirit. And he warned us not to make those two lists into things to avoid and things to seek after. Because Paul is not listing out things to avoid and things to do. He's illustrating a life without the Spirit versus a life with the Spirit. God's call, call to holiness is not him listing out things to avoid that one day we might earn enough points to be called holy, God's not saying, do these things, then you'll be holy. He's saying, be my children, and I will make you holy, and then you will naturally do these things. In Leviticus 19, God gave them specific life examples of what it means to be holy, set apart from the rest of the world, to be a set-apart nation, a chosen nation. It wasn't a to-do list, it was a results list. Living a life of holiness means living by the Spirit, taking on God's character as a child takes on the characteristics of his father. It's not something we can necessarily manufacture, but something that happens naturally, like how my son, instead of saying syrup the proper way, he says syrup like his mother. <laughs> and crayon instead of crayon. Crayon is a cranberry. Crayon is what you color with, or crown. That's even worse. You wear that on your head. Apparently, he spent his formative years around his mother more than me. I knew she should have gone to work instead of staying home. <sighs> That's okay. We all have a tendency to take on traits of those that we spend time with. When, uh, when I'm in a conversation with someone and they're making a point that I maybe hadn't considered and I want to express my, my understanding or acceptance, I'll, I'll say something like, That's fair. Well, Derek and I have had enough conversations to where he started to use that. I've heard him say in other conversations, that's fair. And um, EJ, uh, he will say, and when someone makes a really good point, like a truth from, from the, uh, God's word or something, EJ will usually say, that's a good word. <laughs> and, and now Derek says that too. <laughs> and so what have we learned from this? That D Derek is a very impressionable person. <laughs> And we have to be careful what we say around him. <laughs> also, also, that when we spend time with, uh, spend time with or have others uh, on our minds, we tend to take on some of their characteristics. 
And if we are God's children, let's spend time with him so we can take on his characteristics. The Jews for centuries talked about God as a metaphorical uh, father. But it was Jesus who first lived that out as a father-son relationship. Jesus lived as God's son, having God's spirit, taking on God's character, living a holy life as we are called to live. And Jesus can't have done it without the father. We can't either. Be holy, for God is holy. Look back at verse 13. Right before Peter reminds us God's requirement to be holy, Peter shows us how. First, he says to discipline our minds. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at a revelation of Jesus Christ. Begin with the mind. Prepare your mind so that the actions will follow suit. Be of sober mind. Don't be clouded by any impurity. Remember, being holy means set apart from all impurities. Paul says something similar to the Philippians in chapter 4, um, Philippians 4, 8 through 9. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Begin with the mind, taking in God's pure thought. You will begin to take on his holiness. I love how Paul says, practice these things, because it does take our effort. Uh, we can't just sit back and say a prayer and wait for God to zap us into holiness form. We have to do something. We have to receive the gift and unwrap it. Holiness is, is kind of a strange concept for us to grasp because it's always happening, and yet it has happened. It's kind of like salvation. We are saved, we're being saved, and one day we will be saved. Holiness is, is the same thing. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, my, by my, the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the will of God, uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It starts inside of us. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. As our mind is renewed by the things of God rather than the things of this world, we begin to tra be transformed into someone who discerns things as God would. We begin to see the world in a way God sees the world. We begin to see fellow Christians as brothers and sisters, and we care for them, and we bring them, bring them back gently, uh, correcting them gently when necessary, just like we learned in Genesis, or Galatians, I'm sorry, last, last week. We see those outside the church living according to the world's ru rules, not understanding or believing who God is. As holy children of God, we resist the temptation to cast judgment on them because we see them as God sees them. After all, how can we judge someone based on rules they haven't even agreed to follow? That's something that the church is really bad at. As a judgmental Christian, we might see a, a non-Christian act in a non-Christian way and think, oh, that horrible person, how, how could they do something like that? And I believe God looks at that same person doing that same act and says, oh, my child, why won't you come to me? My heart is hurting 
your heart is hurting and I ache for you to return to me. That's how a holy God views his children that are walking with him. As children of God, we must realize who our father is and accept his DNA inside of us. From the very beginning, we are told that we are made in his image. Be mindful of the holiness of your heavenly father and take on his character. Being mindful of God's holiness will inevitably shape your holiness. Preparing our minds, thinking on the things of God, we, we begin to see the world in ways he sees it. And what follows is obedience. Before we continue in verse 14 and see that second piece of, of instruction from, from Peter, I want to turn to Isaiah 6. Because Isaiah 6 is an amazing picture of how God's holiness affects us. So Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's that three holies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the fountains of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Isn't it interesting when we are exposed to God's holiness, we are reminded of who we are. We are sinful, unworthy creatures. And then God grants us grace and purifies us with the coal from the altar, a symbolic parallel to Jesus' sacrifice, making, holy in God, making us holy in God's eyes. And then in response with our newfound holiness and the view of the world, we want to serve him and be sent out in obedience. That is the proper response to God's holiness. In order to be holy, Peter tells us to prepare our minds. And then in verse 14, he tells us we are to be obedient. 1 Peter 1.14, as, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Stop molding your character by your evil desires, but instead take on God's holy character. The character that is built from worldly things only creates a facade, but on the inside, garbage. Jesus called out the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombs, and their outer appearance, though pious and religious, was covered up for the condition of their rotten hearts. Nothing good can come from conforming your character by things of this world. Instead, be obedient to the commands of God. In Isaiah, when we are exposed to God's holiness, it says, the natural response is obedience. The problem is that we, the church, have compartmentalized our faith and somehow live in a semi-compromised state and think that that's normal and okay. As A.W. Tozer once said, we have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look, uh, look upon it as natural and expected things. 
but God demands we be holy, set apart from the world. He's always said this. For a time, we must live in this noise, but not compromise our faith and actions. We are to be holy because God is holy. One of Jesus' last prayers recorded in John 17, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's coming. He knows what the night is going to unveil. And yet he prays for us. And I've referred to this many times. It's my favorite section of, uh, of, of uh, scripture because Jesus is literally praying for you and me. And in John 17, 14 through 18, just a bit of this prayer, he says, I have given them your word, speaking of all his disciples. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. We are being called to be holy for the sake of expanding God's kingdom because he wants more children. He wants all to come to accept his amazing grace. If this weren't true, he'd immediately take us all to heaven the second we accept uh, Christ as our Lord and Savior and get us out of this mess. But Jesus specifically prayed, I'm not asking you to take them from this mess. I'm asking you to keep them in it, but protect them while they're there because they have a job to do. He gave us this life. He allows us to live in this fallen world so that his kingdom would spread and that his holy children would show the rest of the world who he is and that we would go and make disciples of all nations. We cannot do that if we retreat into Christian subculture or become judgmental towards those outside the Christian faith or compromise our beliefs by falling into sin. We compromise all of that. We have to live in the noise and while we are here, we have, we have a role to play in God's great rescue plan. We're not the rescuers, Jesus took care of that. But we are ambassadors. We have a message to carry, and we do that by our actions and our words, living out the fruit of the Spirit so that others may see God's holiness in us. God is holy. Jesus lived in the noise of this fallen world as God's holy son because he was united with the Father. And God demands holiness of us as well. Jesus kept his mind on his father as we should. And Jesus was obedient in every way, just as we ought to be. And Jesus lived out his mission on, his, on this earth, just as we should. Be holy as our heavenly father is holy. Being holy means we love like Jesus, showing love to both the believer and non-believer. That's why we're still in this fallen world. It, it, it doesn't, our, our mission is not necessarily just to be kind to one another, those who have agreed to follow the rules. Our mission is out in the world. So we gather each week to encourage each other, to hear a bit of his word, to unify our voices and sing praise to him, to serve one another. But we have to leave this room to complete our mission. So let's 
soak in as much of God's holiness as we can. And as you go, continue to dive into the word. Continue a conversation with him. Continue to remind yourselves of what his word says here. The fact that Jesus himself prayed for you, that you wouldn't be taken from this world, right, in it, and yet protected from the evil one. Guys, Jesus prayed that he's on your side. What more can we ask for? We have all the resources right here. It's, it's, it's like receiving a gift. All we have to do is invite him. Let's finish out the chapter, 1 Peter 1, 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, because we are God's holy children, living in the noise of this fallen world, as mere foreigners waiting for our inheritance, live in great respect and obedience to God. Please remember that. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as a silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a tomb, that of a lamb without a blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How many times have we heard this year, last year in scripture, love one another? love one another in obedience faith discipleship the teacher will continue to teach one thing until everyone has obeyed it and if they have not and they come back together and there's not this active obedience of the scriptures that they studied last week guess what they do it again how many times do we hear in scripture love one another Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Church, we are not here for very long. Our bodies Things of this world will wither and fade. I'm not even 40 yet, and my body hurts. It's not lasting very long. 80 years, maybe. But the things of God last forever. You who are called by God, you who are made holy, set apart for his good works. Hold on to what is good. Set your mind on things above. Be obedient to his word and live the life he wants you to live for the purpose of showing his holiness to the world so that, that the world so desperately needs him. Take on your father's DNA. Say syrup, I don't care. Take on your father's character. He meant for us to be that way from the very beginning. We, we messed it up and we made a way through Christ can be holy again. Be holy for our God is holy.
Father, we thank you. Words are not enough. So, Father, the only way we can thank you is Paul's words in Romans 12. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. In this room, I pray that we would love one another with pure hearts. I pray that if there is a conflict in this room, that you would put it on our hearts, humble us to approach the person that we need to approach and say, I'm sorry. Or to kindly bring someone back into the fold. And Father, as we go our separate ways this week in the places that you have placed us in our neighborhoods, in our houses, in our families, in our workplaces, where we like to get our, our, our things or the grocery store, wherever we go throughout the week. You have placed us there on purpose because we are part of your rescue plan for the rest of the world. Father, help us not to focus on making the world pure, but bringing your purity to the world. We love you, Father, for what you have done and what you continue to do, the grace that you extend and continue to extend. If it weren't for that, we would all be lost. But Father, thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name.